I remember when I became you know, CEO of Job Capital and one of the very first board meetings I had with some new customers coming in, um, my CFO at the time was a great, terrific guy, um, early, sort of early to mid 40s, um, wore the pinstripe suits and someone asked a question about the business and pointed the question to my CFO. And this is, this is what a great male ally does. He turned around and he said, Joe's the CEO of the company, she's the best place to answer that question. That's male allyship right there. Growth Magic is a podcast exploring the techniques of exceptional leaders and how they weave together ingenuity, intent and serendipity to realise big things. We invite storytellers from business, champions of impact, fast growth, entrepreneurs and executives of major change to reveal their secrets and share their vision for the new world. I'm Hugh Evans. And I'm Liz Wise. And today we're joined by Joe Burston, entrepreneurial founding CEO of Inspiring Rare Birds and Job Capital. Joe's one of the most inspiring women in business in Australia and has been named in the BRW Fast 100, the AFR's 100 Women of Influence and the Smart Company Smart 50. She's also been named in Australia's top 30 female entrepreneurs. She's received a Piercy Award for ITC and has been awarded the Optus Businesswoman of the Year. She's also the 2021 YPO Global Impact Honoree. As one of Australia's most successful serial female entrepreneurs, Jo's a passionate advocate for diversity and inclusion and its impact on talent retention and business success. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. Obviously, we're great friends uh, anyway, but can you just give us a sense of uh, the purpose behind Inspiring Rare Birds? Sure, I launched Inspiring Rare Birds, Hugh, in 2014, and there was a catalytic moment for that to happen. I'd been running my business job capital for then since 2006, and I was getting a little bit itchy and a little bit bored with it, which as entrepreneurs do as they run through ideas and think about what can happen next in life. But I realised when I was standing on stage accepting the PC Foundation Award for my contribution to technology and community in 2012. I was at Parliament House in New South Wales and a sea of faces were welcoming me to accept the award. I was about to give my acceptance speech and looking out into this crowd, I saw men, men's faces everywhere. There was academics, politicians, captains of industry. And I just had this little moment and thought, where are all the women in this industry? And it wasn't a critical question, it was an inquisitive, curious question. And I kind of had this moment where I thought, am I here just because they need a woman to win this this year? Did something quite bold and I went to my old public school, um, my high school and my primary school, and I had the, with, with the confidence of the Department of Education, and I interviewed um, about 30 young girls between the ages of seven and 18. And I asked them lots of things specifically about who they wanted to become as they grew, not what job do you want to get when you grow up and leave school, but who do you want to become as you grow, which is a very purposeful question in itself. Mm. Um, they kind of told me, you know, one wants to be a writer, one, one wanted to be on television, one wanted to be a school teacher, one wanted to be a nurse. And I got curious and said to them, well, what about business? You know, have you thought about going to business? Does anyone know what an entrepreneur is? And of the girls that knew what it was, every single one of them told me it was a man. It was a man's job. Mm. So this is this real big 
super aha moment I've had twice. So my bubble burst pretty quickly that day and that became my mission right then and there to create a movement that gave young women role models and luminaries and older women they could look up to and learn from and connect with to create a sense of who they could become as an entrepreneur or a leader in the future. Yeah, so in doing my research for this conversation today, I discovered that uh, there wasn't a single appointment to the ASX 200 of a woman to the role of the CEO. And to hear your story, uh, honestly, from my perspective, felt um, feels quite shocking uh, because I'd imagine that we'd actually come a lot further than this. Um, you know, this has been on the agenda for at least a decade, um, if not three decades, you know, and, and it just seems to me that we're, we're not even moving the dial at the most fundamental level of participation, um, you know, at the top end of, uh, of town. That's, there's, there's so much to talk about in just that little bit that you've mentioned there, Hugh. When you look at the ASX businesses in Australia, they have gone backwards. It's really sad. You know, the numbers are declining. And if you look at some of the surveys and research that's been done, particularly by chief executive women, um, it's still 96% of CEO appointments um, are of men. Now, most appointments that are made at a CEO level are people that in their previous roles were CFOs. The representation of CFOs as women is about 12% of all CFOs across that ASX 200. So we haven't just got a, it's not even a leaky pipe. We don't even have a pipe. You know, there's not the talent moving through businesses and being pointed to executive roles and taken through leadership pathways to get to an executive role position where they could even be considered for a CFO and then a CEO role. So on the basis of that sort of system, it's not going to work, is it? It's not possible no. that it can work. Well well, actually, it reminds me of, um, uh, you might remember if you read Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. So in, in Outliers, he talked about how hockey players who were born in January mm. tend to be the ones who ended up in the pro league um, because the intake was in January. They were bigger. They got more encouragement. And it just meant this, this talent pool at the, uh, you know, the December, November, December or the end of the year just wasn't accessed for professional hockey um, yeah. when they did the analysis. And, and so the solution to that was, well, take an intake, you know, across all, you know, the, the whole year and open up the rest of the talent pool. When we look at women, we have a talent pool uh, of, of uh, women who are parents of only two thirds of the available mm. workforce, um, which would make up something like only a third of the total available workforce. So we can only expect one in three women at best under those numbers to actually participate. And then you get all these reinforcing factors that actually reinforce that situation. So it's no surprise at this stage that we only have, you know, a small percentage getting into these CFO roles mm. um, from a participation perspective. But then you consider other things like um, coming out of the workforce, you lose momentum, you might um, lose confidence, you might lose context, you might lose political capital yes. um, in your role in, the, in that organisation. How? Um, what is the nature of the challenge? Like how, how, do, how do we... What are the dimensions of this challenge as you see it? I'll try and put it into pieces. I think the first part is perception. Um, Professor Ray Cooper from the University of Sydney, who's a global expert in DNI, did a bit of research and she found that 70% of men who were interviewed in her gender equality research didn't think that there was any problems with equality in their workforce. 
a staggering 70% of women thought there was. And what was most devastating about that kind of research, and it's very recent stuff, is that that research is not done with participants who are older and have been in the workforce and been in leadership for 20 or 30 years. The people that were, were surveyed are between the ages of 16 and 40. So they're all of our future leaders, our future female and male leaders who are still having the same conversations, Hugh, that we were having 10 or 20 years ago. So you can see that there's this real perception issue. And I, I can't see how that's going to change unless there's systematic changes in organisations that have built essentially by men, for men, and changing them and re, like even from, from your design thinking perspective, how do you redesign a system so that everybody's included? Yeah, I think, I think this whole, um, there is a design challenge here for all of us. Uh, we actually recently delivered a, a major design project that required a significant uptick in design-related talent, uh, which is an area that has much better representation of uh, female talent than um, perhaps in IT. And mm. because of that, we, uh, we suddenly found ourselves with a lot more women in these teams um, jamming with us on the, on the, on the solution and, and working with our clients uh, than, than we had for pr the previous months. And, uh, you know, that energy and the you know, the tone and the creativity that actually comes with that, as soon as we rolled out of that project, you actually felt the stark loss yes. of that experience. And really connecting people to the quality of what happens when you have a truly diverse team yep. and the, the, the joy, the fun that, that yeah. you, you have, um, you know, was something I actually just recently experienced, literally only, only a few weeks ago. And I think this needs to be brought to life for people, right? Mm -hmm. Like to, to actually see and experience what happens when you have a vital, flourishing, collaborative community of people mm. represented, you know, cross-gender, cross-culture, cross-demographic, mm. um, and how that unlocks value. And then to, to bring that, that uh, experience as a, as, a, as a sense of motivation for how we might uh, inspire the rest of the organisation to take up the challenge rather than just make it a tick-box exercise, mm. uh, which it often is in CSR. And, and it can be seen as a really boring subject for some people, which is ridiculous. It's at that point, Hugh, when, they, when the person is selected for the role, if they're identified as an emerging young woman who's talented or an emerging young leader who's talented or an emerging leader, it's at that point we need to have the conversation around their life career. So when they become of an age where they decide to have a family, whether it's in their 20s or their 30s or their 40s, because that's all possible now, the culture of an environment has to be such that that conversation with their leader or HR, whoever the function is, is safe and it's comfortable and it's open. And it's not just, say, me going to my boss and saying, I'm thinking about having a baby. It's when I have my review each year and my leader says, hey, how's life going for you? I want you to know that if there's a time you're thinking about having a family, we're going to support you. And this is the way we're going to do that for you. So the company is taking a proactive response approach to um, women having children, raising children, but it should also be done for guys as well so that there's an equal perception around men wanting to have time off to enjoy their family and enjoy their children 
and not have this stigmatism that is attached to that, which, which happens a lot at the moment. So first of all, we've got to get that conversation right. So the pathway is safe and it's available. And who doesn't, what woman doesn't want to work for a company that has that conversation? And, and to that, for that matter, what man doesn't as yeah. well? I, I, I feel that, you know, I, I have a four-month-year-old uh, child that, uh, you know, and we are juggling these issues right now and we're discussing them. Yeah. And, um, you know, working at uh, it's kind of every level of the system, like at the one level, the participation rate, making it appropriate um, and culturally uh, uh, balanced that you know, men, men should take. This is our cultural norm that we have this conversation. Yeah. 100 percent that that um that men would also take time out to Absolutely. be the, the primary pr primary uh caregiver or parent because the, the opposite of that if that doesn't happen we get women who are excelling through their leadership pathways and men as well and when they go off and have children through our research and i guess through my lots and lots of conversations with HR and women in very, very large multinational organisations and global companies, these women will leave to have a family and they lose confidence. They sit at home thinking, I'm not in touch with the business anymore. Uh, I don't feel like I'm included. Someone younger, faster, smarter has probably taken my job. I don't know if I'm valid anymore in the business or my skills are valid. And the exact opposite is true, you know, with life comes wisdom and with experience comes wisdom as well. So having someone who has life and family wisdom as well as business and skill wisdom, I think the combination is undeniably more attractive. There's a, there's a, there's a design opportunity there as well, and that is uh, to design for that structure. So uh, why don't we have an opportunity for women to, uh, or men, whoever happens to be the primary parent in that situation to have an ongoing connection with the employer in an advisory role um, mm -hmm. as a subject matter expert. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're now more and more organisations are working in an agile fashion. Um, there are different ways to include people in the workflow uh, that actually honours their talent in a part-time way. Um, you know, there are different ways to do things. This is just a design challenge and it's, yeah. a, it's a challenge of consciousness and, and design in my view. I think it's more than just a design challenge because it's also about asking folks to shift some very deep mm. and long-held behavioural norms, individual expectations. It's asking us to step outside our family of origins culture. So I think, you know, when we look at it as saying it's it's just a design challenge, I think it's it, there is a, a huge element of, of deep empathy mm -hmm. that's required right up front at the start of that. And I know corporations and organisations intend and have the intent to want to do the right thing. It's knowing in which order to address things, I suppose, how to get there in order to affect change. And, you know, Joe, you were referring to some data and it was published fairly recently in, in the press here as well. And it feels like it would almost take a generation to shift the dial a little bit for women. So I'm, I'm curious about what are the, some of the things that, that organisations can do now immediately um, around really reshaping this conversation? Because I know it goes beyond things like quotas. Um, yeah. You know, what are, the, what are the, the, the tangible efforts that, that can be made? I think, again, we'll go back to, like, I think blind recruitment is such an easy thing mm. to implement. Mm. There was an uh, orchestra, in a symphony orchestra in the UK who did this, and they blind uh, interviewed all the musicians for a symphony. And miraculously, when they did that, so all the, all the players are playing behind a curtain, no one can see mm -hmm. anyone, 
And when the results came out of who was hired, miraculously, it was completely diverse and inclusive. Wow. On all levels, culturally, age and gender. So take the names off the CVs and go by what you read, not by who you think you're reading about and what, you know, particularly with a, with a cultural slant, sometimes, I mean, it's not so much anymore, but, you know, people with perhaps a culturally hard to pronounce name or surname could be, mm. you know, unbiasedly put into a bucket that they don't really belong in from, from the first read of their CV. I think this is a really funny one, but it seems to happen everywhere. Women are not the people that need to go and buy the birthday cakes and the birthday presents. And, you know, it's traditional. I've seen it in every business I've worked for. Where it's always some, one of the women that goes running around doing all that stuff where it's actually everyone's job to celebrate everybody's individual celebrations. It sounds so simple, but it just happens that way in Australian business for some reason. And, and the same as like cleaning up the sink and cleaning the kitchen. <laughs> so, Joe, when it comes to diversity and inclusion, what does done look like? It's a really big question and I hope that I'm still around to see a country, I don't think a world, but a country where this really is exists from a walk-the-talk perspective, you know, where businesses are mm. talking about it, they're exercising what they're saying and people are being hired on the basis of skill and talent and not what they look like or where they're from or how old they are or their gender. Now, I can't see that happening in my lifetime. You know, the purpose of Rare Birds is built because, you know, it's not a business that's going to pay the mortgage, but it is a business that I hope goes out of business at some point because when it goes out of business, that's when I know my job's done. We are trying to really rebalance this equation as much as we can with uh, a really strong ICT bias in our workforce, um, which, which means we're already dealing with a lot of scarcity. And what I'm seeing is that uh, you, I think you mentioned that uh, uh, in the uh, McKinsey report, 21% uh, of organisations that uh, have a strong uh, diversity uh, are, are, have above average profitability. Mm. It makes me think, is that a cause or is that an effect? Like, are, is that group actually attracting the women because they're more profitable and they have the resources and they're, they're, they're running better businesses that actually creates that effect? Or is it a consequence of, uh, you know, the, the diversity inside the organisation? Because what I'm seeing is it's a bit like a, a soccer team, you know, at school where, you know, if, if, uh, if you get a chance, if, if, you, if you're last to pick the team, you know, you don't necessarily get the best players. And the more powerful organisations with the bigger budgets, the bigger resources, the bigger brands, they're the ones who can actually step in and, and, and get access to uh, the talent. Uh, is, is there something in that? Am I seeing, is, am I seeing something that's real? Is that, is that real? Let me ask you a question in response to really frame my answer to that. If you, had, if you saw two companies on the ASX that were tech ITC businesses, they were both at sort of the same revenue points. And one of them was all men and one of them had a diverse and inclusive culture. Which one would you more likely to buy shares in? The diverse one, no-brainer. Yeah, so, and so that's a good reason to have the diversity, but it's almost like a self-reinforcing reality. Diversity begets diversity and those who are left on the sidelines who are struggling to access the scarce talent um, and, and are trying their best potentially, perhaps, it's going to, to do get something harder. about it. It's going to get harder. 
It's going to get harder. It so, is going so, to get harder. So you've got to break because there are these reinforcing loops where it's sort of separating the, the haves from the have-nots yes. in the diverse equation. Yeah. Like how, do we, how do we break that so we can get more diversity in those who actually experience diversity? It's a bit of a double-edged question, but if I look at a company like Canva, who was, what, yesterday valued at about, what, $60 billion? $54 billion. Obviously, Mel Perkins is one of the co-founders with Jeff Albright, and they have programs with... Now, now Mel's, what, probably 30-something. She's under 40. 34. Yeah? 34, yeah. And they have a program called Unstoppable Me. They have Girls That Code... They have programs that help women from university into the organisation that study technology and computer sciences. So here's an organisation that's proven if you have a pipeline and resources and programs to support young women coming into the technology industry, they're going to go work there. You know, if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if your job ad says we welcome women in this particular way, not in those words, but it, it's the language is designed to attract that particular applicant, then they're going to attract that particular applicant. So, so, so the, the key message there is that you can't sit on your hands and expect it to magically resolve. You actually have to have things in place. You have to have initiatives. Yes. You, you, have, to have, a, you have to have a strategy yes. around how you're, you're going to make this work. Yes. And if you have two businesses, again, say the same revenue, same profitability, and you're trying to attract females to that organisation, you have to have a differentiator. You have to do something that they can see that's real. When they call someone else from the organisation before they accept a role and say, hey, I was in interview and Hugh told me that if I work there as a female, these are all the amazing things that happen. Can you quantify that? Can you tell me what's real? Like those calls are going to go on in the background, aren't they? I mean, I would do that. So there has to be substance and, and grit in what what is being delivered to attract those women yeah great advice you've got to adjust your values you've got to live your values yeah. and you've got to assess yourself on whether or not you're you're delivering against them every day and yeah you've sent it great organizations that have diversity attract that mm. they attract it because mm. it, it's a safer place to work this just illustrates the schism between the old world and the new world the progressives you know, the, and, and the fact that culture is a strategic weapon now. Look, remember, in the late 90s, early 2000s, I was wearing pinstripe three-piece suits to work with, with French cuffs and cufflinks. You know, who was I trying to be? I was trying to look like my boss. Now I wear a dress every day. Yep. I used to wear a five-inch heel so that I could be as tall as all of the blokes that I would be going to the pub with <laughs> after the, the work day because I was at everybody's chest level. And so to actually be in the conversation, to physically be in the conversation, I had to wear the equivalent of stilts yeah. as a small woman. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting to take, take the flat shoe back. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Joe, t- take us back to that, that experience. I mean, what, what was it like in that environment? Uh, what, what, like, oh, it was fascinating. You know, I, had, um, I was sexually harassed numerous times. It was, it was a norm here, wasn't it? It was like most functions, most industry function someone had a crack you know and then um yeah and I remember when I became you know CEO of Job Capital and one of the very first board meetings I had with some and with some new customers coming in um my CFO at the time was great terrific guy um early sort of early to mid 40s 
um, wore the pinstripe suits and everyone walked into the boardroom. They started talking about golf and uh, started talking about footy and I'm like, this is boring me to death. And then we all sat down and someone asked a question about the business and pointed the question to my CFO. And this is, this is what a great male ally does. He turned around and he said, Joe's the CEO of the company. She's best placed to answer that question. That's male allyship right there. Yeah, very. And, and that story must be so common uh, in, in, in the world even today. Yeah. I, I have a friend who uh, I was providing some support to. She has a very successful business in um, uh, medicinal cannabis in the States. And uh, she was telling me how she uh, would go and sit down in meetings with her um, IT, uh, head of IT, and in the meeting they would immediately address Mm. Uh, her IT guy, you know, as as though he was running the business, mm. and and when she, you know, she, when she was confiding in me about how frustrated this made her, it was just so real, so visceral. Mm. You know, you can just imagine um, uh, what it's taken to actually go on that journey to get to a point for you, Joe, where where you know you are now a leading light. You've got a, a solution. You've got a positive, optimistic outlook. And you're really uh, leading the way. And, and by bringing in male allyship, which I, I think is an absolutely critical ingredient mm. in this because we are all part of the, um, the, the, the successful vision, I think, of, of what it means to be on the other side when your business is out of business because you don't need it anymore. You know, that's, uh, that, that, that's, that's pretty huge. Mm, absolutely. And I come from a strong line of matriarchs which which helps as well and that is you know women who have been strong and forceful in their own journeys my mother was one of the first women to work as a manager when she's years and years ago she's been retired 30 years now but all those glass ceilings that she broke you know she would tell me stories and come home from work crying and tell me stories about how she was treated it was deplorable and Friday drinks in the, in the office in the afternoon, she never got invited. You know, it was in the boss's office with all the blokes having beers and, and, and smoking around, the, which, which you could do then. But, you know, it's changed a lot. But those stories that are, you know, handed from her to me, it's, it's pretty powerful to me go, you know what, we've come a long way. We have really come a long way. That doesn't happen anymore. Very powerful. But what it also makes me think about is that not only... Uh, have we come a long way, but in a lot of the big corporates who are still finding their way through to sort of this new world, you know, vision of, of what a culture can be, you know, some of these environments are so brutal, whether you're male or female. Yes. And, you know, you've got to be pretty motivated to want to actually go on the journey to, to ride, you know, go up the corporate ladder as a male or a female. Yes. But then if you have those additional issues of, you know, the, the, uh, the behaviour, the difficulties, the systemic bias and all these other things that go on, it's, it's no wonder why, um, you know, people start, you know, opting out and yeah, opting to want to do absolutely. something different. When you look at tech, big tech companies, for example, Hugh, that are completely data-driven, right, bottom-line driven, and if you look at, I mean, it's changing, but the way they used to work, I mean, as long as you're the best salesperson, you're making the most money, you had carte blanche over any of your behaviour, right? The, yeah, the, most, yeah. the, the, the biggest biller and the rainmakers never got fired for, you know, touching someone up or doing something wrong. And that, and that sort of you get away with anything if you perform mindset 
uh, also tends to reinforce the the almost locker room experience, where you know. Uh, you know, all's fair in the battle kind of thing to get to, to win business and be successful. Um, you, and you can see how, how men, rap, you know, protect each other in, in those environments like, a, like almost like a team sport. Mm. So you can see all sorts of things, all sorts of reasons why these become difficult environments. And that's why male allyship is so critical at those points because it, that's when it's not the woman that steps in and goes, hey, that's not right, it's her peer that steps in and says to the other guy, hey, hang on a second, that's not right. Yeah. And it's, it's, and it's got to come from the head. Mm. It's got to come, you know, a fish rots from the head. It's got to start with leaders who represent the behaviours that they want to see the people who work with them and for them maintaining. Yeah. And, and, and those that's leaders... Some of the things yeah, and those leaders typically need to go through some personal transformation themselves because, mm. you know, they probably have gone on a journey themselves where they've been inculcated into one experience over mm. you know 10 or 15 years ago and and something turns the lights on and maybe it's just turning on now for some people but it's uh yeah it's 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 a journey that that mm. you've got to got to travel so forget this male pale stale thing I, I kind of i find that term quite offensive for guys because i know lots of men that look like that that are not stale and that are fantastic and great to work with so i think it's the same as you know calling a, a you know someone who's assertive that's a woman, a, a bossy, you know, bossy woman or aggressive. And I think it's just equally offensive. I think we have to just go back to who am I talking to and what is their driver and let's not judge by the outside. One of the things I loved that you said, Joe, was when you were talking about moving from an adversarial mindset to an allyship mindset where there is abundance for everyone. And so this shift in the status quo doesn't mean that the person who has agency loses. Right. It means that they can use their agency to help everybody win. And that to me is so optimistic and exciting. Mm -hmm. And and again, it makes that person feel like, you know, they they're giving, but the gain is going but the gain is going to be greater. If I give and I participate, my gain is going to be greater. Which in business is tantalising. Very. This has been such an inspiring conversation, Joe. and not only can I not wait to share it with my eight-year-old daughter, but also my 14-year-old and 25-year-old sons and talk to them about this issue. So um, it's been absolutely awesome having you on the show and uh, can't wait to catch up again. Thank you so much, Hugh, and thank you, Liz. It's been such a pleasure and a joy to talk about something you know I'm completely passionate about I could talk for the next two hours on. Thank you, Joe. And uh, to any of the, the, the ladies and fellas who have been listening to us today um, or anybody in particular who'd like to join your mentorship program, either as a recipient or as a provider, how can they do that, Joe? It's really simple. You go to inspiringrebirds.com and you can select in the menu to join one of the programs as a mentee, which of course are paid. And we have scholarship programs provided by funding from government and local council and business. And also you can become a mentor. And the right time to become a mentor is today because you don't know how much knowledge and wisdom you're actually sitting on.